Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is this one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where this Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, They return to their country by another route. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, once again, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, We want to thank the band for uh, leading us in worship. Um, For those of you who go to the 930 service, you don't usually see the band. And they actually toned it down a little bit just for you um, who normally go to the 930 service. But we're glad they stepped in. Um, this morning. Um, also, thanks to Derek Wells. Uh, probably none of you would know this, but our parking lot is as clear as it is because of Derek, uh, who's a member of this church. Yes. <laughs> it's uh, a shameless plug for Wells Landscaping. Okay. That's Derek's business, and he takes care of us, and he does a great job. So thanks to him. And then some of you might be wondering. Uh, what the cancellation policy at ECC for weather is. Um, Well, here's my personal policy. Um, Would the Green Bay Packers cancel their game on a day like this? Ask yourself that question. Okay? And the answer is no. And so if they wouldn't cancel their game, why should we cancel worship? That's, That's my philosophy. And besides that, there's kind of a personal thing going on there. Because my daughter will be broadcasting from that field this morning at 15 below zero. So I got to preach. <laughs> uh, so here we are. But thanks for coming. Uh, also, some of you might have wondered about the text that was read this morning. Sounds like a Christmas text, right? It's one that frequently we uh, read at Christmas time and, and Christmas is past. But actually, it's true, honestly that historically, the church has never viewed it as a Christmas text. We do now, but traditionally, that text was what is called an Epiphany text. And this is technically Epiphany Sunday. And so I chose that text to launch the idea of Epiphany for us this morning. And as you'll notice, we're going to take a look at several other texts 
um, not that we'll read all of them, but refer to them, that I think fall under the category of epiphany. Now, what does epiphany mean? Very simply, it means awakening or appearance or enlightenment. Or to put it in more than one word, that someone's eyes or heart would be opened to a new idea, a new truth, a new revelation. That's what epiphany is. The text that we read this morning, of course, is an epiphany text because the eyes of those who really were far away from the east were open to the reality that the Christ was born in Bethlehem. Of course, the text speaks about Jerusalem. And we know from history that probably when the wise men arrived to see the Christ child, it was two years after the birth of Jesus. So what about those wise men and, and their awakening? How did it even happen? Well, we don't know a whole lot about the wise men except that they were from the east. And sort of the center of culture in the east would have been Babylon or around that area. Persia is another title used for that particular part of the world. And in that particular part of the world, these wise men came from that area. And they said they had discovered that there would be a king born to the Jews and they had come to worship him. And they'd seen a star in the east. Now you might ask yourself, why didn't anyone else see the star in the east? It's likely that they were the ones who had studied the text concerning the coming of Christ. And there were all kinds of surrounding texts that spoke about major events in the future. For whatever reason, the wise men had discovered a text that indicated that Christ would be born in the Palestinian region. And they knew that there was a star in the east, and some text told them to go there. It's curious, isn't it? Where did they get their information? As a matter of fact, where did they even get the idea as people from the east in that region that would have been called Persia or Babylon or Syria at various times? Where did they get their information concerning the Messiah? I think it's likely, historically, that whatever information they had came to them, to them as a result of the Babylonian captivity. You'll recall, hundreds of years before Christ was born, the people of Israel taken to captivity. And you have people whose names you remember from the Old Testament. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those Old Testament figures, especially Daniel, as we know, became part of the inner court of the king in that day, or shall we say, part of the wise men cohort. And in that place, they studied astrology and they studied ancient texts. And in that place, pure speculation, granted, in that place, they no doubt, because of the influence of the Hebrew captives, studied ancient texts like the Old Testament Scriptures. Now mix it all up into a big pot. Astrology, philosophy from the East, the Hebrew tradition of what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures or the Torah. Put all together. And somewhere out of that mixed up pot, these people come to 
Jerusalem to look for the king. How many were there? Uh, We like to say three, but we have no idea. We say three because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some Christian traditions say there were 12 wise men. Who knows? The point is, they came from the east, and they were opened or awakened to a reality that it seemed no one else was. What's also interesting is they came, and when they found the young Christ child, they bowed down and worshipped him. I often wonder what that meant. What did worship mean for them? Was it just honoring a king? If they had been men of dignity, that probably would have been their response had they expected this child was royalty. Or is it possible that they knelt down and they worshipped the king? Is it possible that part of the awakening in their hearts was that this was, with their limited knowledge, something other than a human king? This was the Messiah king? We really don't know. All we know is that their response was absolutely appropriate. And their discovery was amazing. Because nobody else saw it. They were awakened, I think it's safe to say, by the grace of God. Their eyes were open to a reality that was in front of others, but not apparent to them. Only apparent to the wise men. That's one form of epiphany, an awakening, and it's a traditional one. Another epiphany story, which is not necessarily a traditional epiphany story, I find in John's Gospel, chapter 4. In John's Gospel, chapter 4, you have a Samaritan woman who on a routine day goes to the well to get water, which is what she probably did all the time. And on that particular routine occasion, as she goes to the well she encounters a stranger. We know that that stranger was Jesus. We know that before that, the disciples had been with Jesus, but they'd gone into the town to get some food, and Jesus was standing there by the well. Imagine the event, will you? She walks to the well, where most of the time the women went to get the water, and there's a strange Jewish man standing there. She's already alarmed by the fact that she's alone in the presence of a man. Not exactly a customary procedure. She's further alarmed by the fact that the man standing there is a Jewish man and she's a Samaritan, a despised outcast in that region. And then she's startled when this strange Jewish man says to her, Woman, give me a drink. And the woman says to him, give you a drink? Where's that coming from, sir? You've completely broken all my expectations and let me... I love this woman. (laughs) She's both respectful and challenging at every turn. Let me challenge you a moment, Jewish stranger. You're not supposed to do this. Why are you doing it? As a matter of fact, tradition says, I know as well as you, that you wouldn't even drink from the cup that I drank from. And you're asking me, not only to hold the cup, but to get you water and give it to you to drink. 
And Jesus responds so carefully, so calmly, so compassionately. And he says, yes, I'd I'd like to drink. And if you had any idea who it was that was asking you for a drink, you'd be overwhelmed. She doesn't understand. All she knows is this that this strange Jewish man has asked her for a drink. And so she launches into a description of what she knows concerning the water that's there. She says, this water is Jacob's well, our father. And you're asking me for a drink from that water? And he says, yes, I am. And she says to him, let me ask you a question, sir. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who dug this well for us? Well, no, he's not greater than our father Jacob. She's thinking to herself, because our father Jacob's the greatest. And Jesus says, I tell you about this well right here, this water that you're looking at. This water could be eternal water. It could overwhelm you and run over in your life. And the woman says, eternal water, the kind of water that will never run dry. I wouldn't have to keep coming back and forth to this well. Give me some of that water. Just one step at a time, Jesus unfolds his identity. The woman challenges him concerning his role and Jacob's role in the well. And then she launches into a little sort of description of worship. She says, look, I know that um, worship is done at two different places in our culture. Uh, Yours is in Jerusalem and ours is here on Mount Gerizim. It's sort of like she's throwing out a gauntlet in the conversation. Uh, Prove to me that we can continue this conversation. I want to quiz you a bit. And Jesus says to her, Woman, I tell you, there's a time coming where worshipers will basically dissolve those areas of importance. And no matter where they are, they will worship in spirit and in truth. Jerusalem won't be important. Jerusalem won't be important. No particular place will be important anymore in the new era I'm talking about. She's baffled. Oh, that was uh, just the music stand. She's baffled and surprised by his response and wonders what the meaning of this is. And then she says to him, I, I know this. Um, I'm a little confused, and my people are a little confused, and by the way, I'm filling in some gaps, and everybody's a little bit confused, but I know this. One of these days, the Messiah's going to come, and he's going to explain the whole thing to us. And this is the moment of truth, the moment of awakening, the moment that Jesus was waiting for. And he says, Woman, You're looking at him. The Messiah is standing in front of you. You don't have to wait any longer. It's at this point that the water, which is eternal, the awakening, which is remarkable, just flows over her and she understands. She's so overwhelmed by this because he's looked into her life. She's seen him as a prophet as well because she knew things, he knew things about her that no one else did. And he shouldn't have. And she realizes this must be the Messiah. 
So she goes back to her people and she says, I got to tell you about a man I met at the well. This man's amazing. He told me everything about my life. He must be the Messiah. At the end of that encounter with Jesus, her friends and neighbors, and I would imagine her family, come to greet Jesus. And Jesus goes and stays with them for two days. Two wonderful days. And I would imagine he continues to unfold the scriptures to them. And they continue to have their eyes open. And they say to the woman at the end of that passage, they say, we no longer believe just because of what you said. We believe because we've seen. Their eyes were open. An ordinary day, an incredible epiphany that affected who knows how many people. Uh, The next passage I'd like to refer to as a passage of epiphany and awakening and enlightenment is the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now this jumps way ahead. This jumps ahead to the time where Jesus has been crucified and some disciples have reported that he's been seen. And we have two disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus actually encounters them on the road. And as he encounters them, he walks alongside them and their faces are downcast. And they're discussing the events of the days that have transpired. They're discussing the events concerning Jesus. Jesus walks up to them and begins to journey with them, which was not an uncommon practice. If you had someone along the road, you'd walk with them. And on the road to Emmaus, he interrupts them and he says, Can I ask what you're talking about? And they say to him, Well, the things that have occurred recently in Jerusalem. And he says, What things? And they say to him in the most incredulous way, Are you serious? What things? Haven't you heard? You don't know what has happened? The whole town, the whole area is abuzz with activity and excitement concerning these events. And you're asking us, what has happened? Look, it's not like Jesus could have flown in from the Far East on an airplane and not known of the events, right? When you're traveling with a companion in those days, it meant that you were there. They knew he'd been there. And they said, you mean you don't know about these events? You see the irony, of course. I don't have to paint the picture for you. The events are standing in front of them. The reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is standing right in their presence. And they're chastising him for being out of touch with the local news. And Jesus uh, continues to walk with them. And um, when they get to the end of their journey, Jesus uh, acts as though he's going to go on. And they compel him to sit down with them. He said, no, 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 sit with us, will you? And eat. And so they sit down with Jesus. And he takes the bread and he breaks it. And it says, when he gave thanks, when he broke the bread, their eyes were opened. And they could see. I've often wondered why they couldn't see before that time. The text doesn't tell us, except that it says, most translations, they were kept from recognizing him. Kept from recognizing? What kept them 
from recognizing him. Was it them who could not recognize Was it Jesus who actually veiled their eyes so they couldn't see and couldn't understand? We're not altogether sure, but we do know it was an epiphany. It was an awakening of grace. When he broke the bread and prayed, their eyes were open. Oh, by the way, he didn't leave them just with an epiphany and then poof into thin air. He explained to them from all the scriptures why the Christ had to come. Wow, I would love to have been there. (laughs) In terms of New Testament history, I can't imagine a better place to have been than at that moment where Jesus said, probably without text in hand, let me tell you where I am in your scriptures. Would that have been a treat? Their eyes were open. By the way, that's Luke 24 if you want to take a look at it later on. The other epiphany I refer to is um, in the book of Acts in chapter 9 where Paul, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a man who was following best he knew righteousness, a man who was following best he knew Yahweh, a man who had done serious damage to the church, but all in the name of God was on his way uh, to Damascus. And you know the story as well. As he was on his way to Damascus, he was struck from his horse by the Lord, a light, and blinded. And he couldn't figure out what was all happening there. And he, he cried out, and Jesus said to him, Saul, I can't imagine this either. See, I want to give Saul the benefit of the doubt. He was one righteous guy. He was following hard after God. And for whatever reason, he couldn't see Jesus the Messiah. And after struck from his horse, the word comes from the Lord. Saul, it's Jesus the one you've been persecuting. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) He kind of already knew that, didn't he? He was persecuting the followers of Christ. Why? Because they've been following Christ. It shouldn't have been a revelation. Really? He was trying to stamp out the name of Jesus. And on the road, his eyes are awakened somehow to the reality that persecuting Jesus is not the thing to do. See, Paul had not even encountered Jesus, so to speak. He couldn't have known what we now embrace as the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He didn't have the categories to work with. But on that road, that day, he was struck from his horse and he encountered Jesus. And when he encountered Jesus, he was overwhelmed. Of course, the rest of the story goes that he's blinded and he's taken to a street called Straight. 
And while there, a devoted follower of Christ called Ananias is called upon by the Lord to go visit Saul. And Ananias says, really? <laughs> Let me get a second opinion. <laughs> this is the guy who's been searching all of us out. Wants to kill and destroy the church. You want me? Yes. Go be with Saul. I want you to pray for him. And I want you to tell him how much he's going to have to suffer in my name. So Ananias goes to Saul. And he encounters Saul and he calls him Brother Saul. And then he lays his hands on him and prays for Saul. And the text says that scales fell off his eyes. And he could see. Now, I don't know what that means physically. <laughs> I don't know how he was blinded and how he could see. But I do think that the reference is to something other than just physical blindness. Because from that day forward, the scales of his spiritual eyes fell off. And he was able to see the Hebrew Scriptures in a way he had never seen them before. His eyes were open. He was awakened by grace. Now there's the four stories. They're interesting, aren't they? Because they're stories of two outsiders. Or two stories of outsiders. The first story of outsiders are the wise men. Not a part of the Hebrew tradition. The second story of an outsider is a Samaritan. A despised one who knew part of the Hebrew tradition, but was ostracized by the people of God. The next two stories include insiders. The insiders, namely the disciples. And the insider that we now call Apostle Paul. Here's what's interesting to me, is that outsiders and insiders, both of them, were in some way blinded by their own traditions. Of course, the outsiders are blinded by their own traditions because they can't see beyond it. They don't have the revelation. But advance forward to Paul, then called Saul. He had the very Scriptures that we now have in hand. And in the context of those Scriptures and his tradition... He's blinded to the reality of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul's blinded to the reality of Jesus Christ and he knew, I think I'm correct here, <laughs> he knew those scriptures better than any of the other apostles who had already confessed Jesus. The other apostles were not trained like Paul. The other apostles, we believe, to have had just the minimal Jewish Hebrew training in the Scriptures. Paul had been trained at the feet of Gamaliel, a very high-standing Pharisee and teacher of the law. Paul knew the Scriptures inside and out. He knew the Scriptures that spoke concerning Jesus. And in the midst of those Scriptures, studying them daily... He was blinded to the truth. That's rather remarkable, isn't it? 
You might say it's not so remarkable if you didn't have the truth, but if it was right in front of you and you're blinded, why? I suspect it's what's true of all four groups uh, that we talked about, outsiders and, and insiders. They were all blinded by self at some level. At some level, they were all blinded by sin. At some level, perhaps they were all blinded by their own personal expectations concerning who Jesus was, who they expected him to be. May I stretch it a little farther? Perhaps they were blinded by this reality. They expected Jesus to be this way for them. Their particular needs and expectations became the lens through which they viewed Jesus. And Jesus' revelation concerning himself wasn't exactly what they were expecting, perhaps not even exactly what they wanted. And so they were blinded to it. All of these people in these stories were in need of an awakening of grace. And every single one of them received it. They all came from various backgrounds with various perceptions but grace penetrated their lives. I also notice that these epiphanies, they come in different ways, different stages to all these people. Sometimes when we pray fervently for friends or family or neighbors to come to Christ, to be awakened by grace, we have ideas about how it will happen. We have Ideas about what words will or ought to be said so that the revelation concerning Jesus Christ can dawn on them. And we're routinely amazed, aren't we? When God reveals himself to them in ways we never would have expected. Frequently in ways that we have nothing to do with. That's grace. I also noticed that it seems that in these stories, at least, the people who were closest to Jesus were the ones who had to have the most dramatic epiphany in order to be awakened. I, I wonder about a couple of things as it relates to us, and I just have two things to say about that and to encourage you with. The first is this. I know that many of you here this morning desire with all your hearts that some of your closest friends or your family or your neighbors would be truly awakened to the grace of God. And I know some of you are trying so hard to make it happen. As a matter of fact, you may be trying too hard. And as they say in the sports world, you're not letting the game come to you. God is in control of the lives of the people you love. 
He has them in His hands. And He can awaken their hearts by grace. And routinely, He will do it in ways that amaze you and perhaps have nothing to do with you. The point is, don't give up hope. Continue to pray. Continue to be faithful. And an awakening will take place by the grace of God, not by your efforts. Don't know when, don't know where, don't know how, but God is faithful. I've uh, heard many stories um, over the last few years of remarkable awakenings, and I'm not an expert on this, uh, that are happening among the Muslim people. And frequently I hear, again, it's just stories, but I hear the awakenings come in the venue of a dream. We're, we're not so open to dreams, right? We just have them and we say it was a sour orange or something I ate before I went to bed. But frequently in their culture, dreams mean a lot. And repeatedly I've heard stories of awakenings of grace, epiphanies in a dream, not unlike what happened to the Apostle Paul when Jesus spoke to him. Jesus speaks to them. I don't know how it will happen among your loved ones, but somewhere along the way, because God is faithful, they'll be awakened. Of course, it's their decision whether or not they follow the awakening. But pray for it. Be faithful. Don't lose hope. It will happen. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. I think that you and I, and this is especially true of those of us who have followed the Lord for a long time, we have the tendency um, to somehow believe that we can figure it out, right? We have the tendency to think that our tradition, just like the Apostle Paul thought his tradition was the proper one. And through the lens of our tradition, we ought to be able to see it all. And I'm not discounting our tradition. It's a part of the fabric of my very soul. On the other hand, it's possible for our tradition, our tradition that we love and embrace, to actually be a blinder concerning further revelations about God. It's possible. Not because there's anything wrong with the traditions, so to speak, but because we get atrophied. We just go in this direction using this way of understanding and we hardly are ever out of the track. God is bigger than our tradition. He's bigger than us. And it's possible that in this year, if your eyes are opened, you'll find God revealing Himself in remarkably new ways. Not ways that are inconsistent with the revelation of Scripture, but ways that you haven't experienced before. And if you're open to that, by the grace of God, an epiphany may dawn. An awakening of grace. 
Just be open to it. You know I'm not a fanatic. You know I'm not out there on the fringe. You know I resist the kind of stuff that frequently is called ecstatic. But God has his ways of working in his people. Just be open to his grace. And he'll awaken your heart. And you'll see new things this year. Let's pray. God, I thank you um, for your word. Um, It's really at the source of everything we do. Um, In this wonderful tradition that we call the evangelical tradition, it it is word-based. As a matter of fact, Lord, I I can't imagine preaching um, without the word. There's nothing to be said except from the word. It's the living, active word of God and The Spirit of God resides in it, and I just thank you for it. But I pray, Lord, that you will open our eyes to the revelation that is in your Word through the experiences that you bring into our life. Perhaps experiences that will make us uncomfortable. Perhaps places that we might not expect to encounter you. Perhaps through people that we wouldn't see automatically as your messengers. But by your grace, Lord, you can open our eyes and give us insight into who you are and to how to follow you. So we pray that this new year would be a new year of awakening. There will be many epiphanies in our life so that grand new horizons will be open to us. We'll be able to see you in new ways And your grace will dawn upon us. And we pray, Lord, that this will be a year to use a a rather worn-out term for revival. That you will revive our hearts again. Fill our hearts with your love. May our souls be rekindled with fire from above. And we'll thank you for that. In Christ's name, amen.